0: encourage you to turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 24. Exodus chapter 24. So, as we press on in this new year this morning, I want to just kind of contextualize kind of where we're at preaching wise and how we're moving through God's Word. We began the year with a four Sunday, uh, four session sermon series on missions, just kind of illuminating, kind of showing us in God's Word how God has been at work from the beginning to make his name known among the nations, among which we are are included in that, in which we praise God for His grace to make Himself known to us. Now, with that, uh, the first sermon in that mission series uh, was right in line with where we're at in the big picture of things for the year. So at the beginning of the year, we sent out, put out a reading guide for us as a church family. And I made known to you As we move through that reading guide together, whether or not you're moving through that with us or not, that's fine, uh, that my time in God's Word and our times in God's Word together and preaching was going to align with that. So we're preaching through the Bible, essentially, is what I'm looking to do as we read through the Bible together. Right. And so the first session in that mission series lined exactly up with where we were at in that reading guide and now we're kinda moving back into that. There's a few other series that I've planned throughout this year in which we'll kinda we'll take a break from our preaching through the Bible and we'll we'll look at what God has for us in those series and then we'll move back to that Bible reading plan. But For this morning, we're moving right back in there, and so we're in Exodus chapter 24, which if you are reading along with us in that Bible reading plan, you know that was the last chapter in our portion of text to read this morning. So if you're not, allow me to get you caught up this morning, and then feel free to join in with us, right? All right? No shame if you've fallen behind or or anything like that, or maybe you just didn't start with us, feel free to jump right in after this morning because, man, I think this is going to be a really uh, edifying and beneficial time for us as a church family. So we're in Exodus chapter 24, and um, this, this morning I want to kind of be authentic with you about just a struggle I had as I was younger. When I was younger, there was one question that I wrestled with quite a bit, and that was, that of the Ten Commandments, like what, what do we do with them now on this side of the cross? As as followers of Christ and on this side of the cross, what do we do with the Ten Commandments? What what uh, authority and what, what effect do they have in our lives? How do they pertain to the Christian life? And I mean, this, this really perplexed me. I just kind of, I couldn't come to grips with it, no matter how much I wrestled with it. And one of the verses which actually increased uh, my perplexity was that of Matthew 5.17, which we looked at last week, where Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. He goes on to say, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And of course, in the Sermon on the Mount, which is where that comes from, Jesus is instituting what it looks like to live out in light of His kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven, right? And we saw that in the Lord's Prayer. And so, In my kind of thinking, how in wrestling, this just really kind of created more questions. What do I do with that, right, I would think. So for a long time, it was something that I would just kind of sweep away into the corner, a tension that I pretended didn't exist. However, there were times when it would come back and it would plague me again. For instance, sometimes I would hear pastors preach on the law, and they would make the law out to be some sort of caricature, right, that, that, that it only existed, the idea of the law only existed to, to condemn and to, uh, do, to, to reveal different things. And I would just, it would still, it would confuse me because it seemed incomplete. Like, why would God institute the law simply for it to be a caricature in which it just, it just condemned, right? And so, if you're like my younger self, this morning, my prayer is that the Spirit would illuminate your understanding of God's grace through His Word and His law, because that's what we're going to see this morning. If you're struggling with legalism, if you're struggling with works, my prayer is that God would overwhelm you with His grace, the grace of Christ on the cross. If you're struggling with a progressive form of faith, which doesn't know where to draw the line on sin or the standard of God's righteousness, or you, maybe you know someone who is, maybe that's not you, but you know someone who is, then my prayer is that you would be overcome by God's standard for righteousness as it is clearly elaborated in His Word and in His law. So there's, there's something for everyone in this text this morning, because what we're going to see is God's beautiful design for the law and pointing to His salvation made possible through the cross of Christ. Because what we're going to see is that with liberation of God's people comes his standard of righteousness. All right? So I'm going to ask you to church to go ahead and stand in honor of the reading of God's word as we read from Exodus chapter 24, verses 1 through 8. Then he said to Moses, this is the Lord, come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. This is the word of God. Let's pray, church. God, as we come to your word this morning, we pray. Uh, that you, through your Spirit, would illuminate understanding, give us proper knowledge so that we may uh, truly walk in obedience to your word, so that we may have a complete understanding of your word as you intend it to be made known in our hearts, that you would write it on our hearts so that we would live it, so that it wouldn't be just facts or just knowledge or a list that we have memorized, but it would be the very foundation by which we live our lives, seeking to be a, a, a life lived as a pleasing aroma to you, God. And we pray that earnestly now, that let your law not be some, uh, to us some old, outdated list of rules and regulations, but let it be to us a reality a present reality of the standard of righteousness to which you call your people to live and then let us see how in Christ you have made that possible for us as your church and we pray this in Jesus name amen thank you church so as you're being seated again we're we're in Exodus chapter 24 but really I want us to kind of see and contextualize everything that happens in the story up to this point because and I hope you're seeing this as you're reading through God's Word, it is so important to see all that the Lord is doing to build up to this moment. Because too often we'll, we'll have these special standout highlight moments memorized or, or just uh, filed back in our brain from our time in Sunday school as children, right? And uh, we'll lose the big picture because of having just those big moments memorized. Okay? So to this point in the storyline of Scripture, God has set about to liberate his people in accordance with his promises to Abraham. So, and he's doing this through his servant Moses. So he sends Moses to Pharaoh to declare, let my people go. Right. That's the, a that's the big moment. That's one of those that we have highlighted, memorized in our brains. And if you're familiar with the story, you know that that, that didn't go so well. Right? Then Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, Let my people go. And he's like, "Uh, No, why would I do that? Right? And so, uh, but it's the reason why it didn't go so well that I think is often overlooked in the story and forgotten about. The repeated theme up until this point in the story is that God hardened the heart of Pharaoh. He purposefully hardened the heart of Pharaoh. God intentionally made it so that Pharaoh would not submit to the very thing which God was telling Moses to go and declare to him. Why? Why? Why does God harden Pharaoh's heart for the sake of letting his people free? Why not simply just make it so that Pharaoh's heart is immediately softened, and his people are just immediately just, boom, let go, so that Pharaoh's not like, uh, no, he's like, okay, right? Right? Why not do that? That would be so much easier, right? Because God wants to be glorified in the liberation of his people. And so if Pharaoh is the one that just simply, just light-handedly says, sure, go, then people look to Pharaoh in thankfulness for his grace and his mercy, right? He wants the, God wants the eyes of his people to be open, and he wants his people's heart To be tender. And he wants his people's knees to be bent at the glory of his saving action in this story. And so, from the jump, as Pharaoh's heart is hardened, the people are also hesitant to trust in the liberation that God is providing them. So that, as Pharaoh says, not only am I not letting you go, but now you don't get straw to make your bricks and you still have to meet your quotas, right? You still have to do the work and now it's just going to be harder on you. So each time Moses and Aaron go to Pharaoh, Pharaoh's heart grows harder and harder. And there's a point here. Go back, turn back there in Exodus to to chapter 14, because there's a point here that just, it, it really resounds as to the exact purpose of what God was doing in hardening the heart of Pharaoh. And it was bringing his people to this moment right here, In chapter 14, chapter 14, verse 31. So just the very last verse right before you get to chapter 15. The very reason God is hardening the heart of Pharaoh in this story is to bring his people to this realization, to this utterance right here. Okay. Exodus 14, verse 31. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. So up until this point, we see nothing, even after the immediate liberation of the people, we see nothing but grumbling and complaining and frustration as the people go to Moses and bring their complaints to him. And we haven't even gotten to when they get into the wilderness initially, right? And so, we've seen just this lack of faith in what Moses has come to proclaim. That he comes proclaiming, I am has sent me, and he is saying, I am setting you free. Right? That I'm here to bring liberation. And he goes to Pharaoh. Pharaoh doesn't believe it either. And so we see this this hardness of heart on both sides. But the hardness of Pharaoh's heart was brought about so that the people would come to this very realization here. That they would see God's grace and power made known in this story, and that they would come to a a humbling of themselves at God's glory. And that brings me to the first point on your outline there this morning, that our knowledge does not impact God's sovereignty. Our knowledge does not impact God's sovereignty. Now, what do I mean by that? So many people limit their understanding of God's power and sovereignty and grace to what they can conceive of in their minds. And now I say this, and I, I, I want you to understand that I'm not sitting here as some wise Gnostic sage that's about to give you keys to knowledge and understanding and uh, just unlock hidden knowledge within here. My point here is that God is sovereign over the path ahead, whether we see it or not whether we know the path or not. That's what we see in the big picture of this story, is that God was here working, hardening the heart of Pharaoh without the people's knowledge that they're not understanding what's going on here. Why is God doing this? Why has He come to tell us that He's bringing us liberation? And yet here we are, our plight is being heightened. Our knowledge does not impact God's sovereignty. The old... John Piper quote applies here, that God is always doing 10,000 things in your life, and you may be aware of three of them, right? That God is always doing 10,000 things in our life. He's constantly doing countless things in our life, the life of those around us, in the big picture, uh, in the timeline, the scope of uh, redemption history, that God is doing infinite amount of things, and we're aware of maybe three of them within our own lives, right? So church, to this point in the story, we've seen God exercise his sovereignty over the Israelites to make himself known in Moses and the burning bush and revealing his covenant name and providing for every every excuse that Moses offers. He provides Aaron We've also seen him exercise his sovereignty in the heart of Pharaoh to harden it, as I mentioned. Both equally, so both in his glorifying himself in Moses and then making his name known to the people and in hardening the heart of Pharaoh, both equally serve God's glory and purposes. So the age-old question here is, why Why does God save some and not others? Why does God condemn sinners to hell? Why not, why not God use Moses to, to save Pharaoh? The answer is clear here in the story, and it's so much more simple than we make it out to be. He does so for His glory. The Israelites are forced to build bricks without straw, instantly show lack of faith and in God, by griping to Moses, they reach the Red Sea and they display lack of faith because that's what's happening here in chapter 14. And this verse that we just read is that this happens after the Lord closes up the Red Sea on Pharaoh and all those who were pursuing them. And look look to verse 10. Look to verse 10 there, of chapter 14, because you'll see the posture of Israel right before this moment in which they. They like their eyes are open and they realize the glory of God and what God has been doing in their midst, even though they couldn't see it before. Exodus chapter fourteen, verse ten: When Pharaoh drew near, so this the people have gotten to the Red Sea, and they're like, "Okay, now what do we do?" Pharaoh's in hot, hot pursuit, and now all that's in front of them and their force is is the Red Sea. Right when Pharaoh drew near. The people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them. And look at this wording right here. And they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Is it not this, is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And then what does God do? He tells Moses, lift up your arms. And God, God sends the strong east wind to divide the Red Sea, allow his people to walk through on dry land. And then closes the sea up, and then the people realize, verse 31, Israel saw the great power of the Lord used against the Egyptians. So first, they feared Pharaoh. They look up, and they fear Pharaoh. They fear what they know, what they can see, what they can understand, is that we are about to die. Because that's all that they knew. That's all they understood. They, they, didn't, they weren't fully showing faith in the Lord here, and Israel Now, after they see that great Red Sea close up on the Egyptians and wipe out Pharaoh and his army, Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant, Moses. So what changes there from from what we read in Exodus 14.10? 10 to 14, what changes there to verse 31? They see God's power at work to save them from their enemy and liberate them. They're overcome by the glory of God because they realize that God was working all along. They realize that God was standing outside of eternity. He was standing outside of their little timeline and what they could understood. So as they look up at Pharaoh and they are in total fear Now they realize the one who has eternity in his hand is the one whom they should fear. So the question that this prompts for us is, are you, church, overwhelmed at the glory of God to save you and liberate you from your sin? To redeem the depravity of your flesh and make you walk in the righteousness of Christ? Christian, have you allowed culture to cloud your vision and turn your eyes toward selfish gain and give you a fear of what you read in the news, of what you think of this policy or what you think about that? Have you allowed culture to cloud your eyes and shield you from the fear of the Lord in realizing the one who is in all control? Because your knowledge does not impact God's sovereignty, or rather, I guess a better way of saying it, our lack of knowledge does not impact God's sovereignty is the point of what I'm saying there. Children and teenagers, do you see how the standards which your parents are setting for you are so that you will know the freedom that comes from living under the law of God's kingdom? Do you, see, do you understand that your parents are setting for you a standard so that you'll know the freedom that comes with living under in God's kingdom? Or are you too busy allowing your selfish desires to make your heart Parents, do you see how the struggle to have your children obey is in and of itself a gift of God's grace to make his law and ways seem all the sweeter? Probably not right now. <laughs> but my prayer is that you will. And I say you, I'm, I'm right in the middle of that struggle, parents, all right? So, seniors. Seniors. As in senior adults, can you look back on the life that God has granted you and say, I will sing to the Lord for He has triumphed gloriously? Or are you too overcome by the negative thoughts that come with this age? Because as we're going to see as we move along in the storyline here, that God's liberation of His people here is so that He can set for them and reveal to them His glory and His holiness. And then show them the standard by which he calls them to live so that they can be holy as he is holy and be in right relationship with him. Because that's what's happening in this storyline here. And if you've you've read and and you've been following along in the reading plan, hopefully you've picked up on that. If not, I'm praying that that's becoming clear right here. Because church, when we allow ourselves to be so selfishly bound by the knowledge of the present, the desires and the wishing and the wanting that we can fix our praise on the one who has set us free because we become so consumed by our present knowledge and our wishing and our wanting that we can't fix our praise on the one who has set us free. We are, when that happens, we are once again placing ourselves in slavery to sin. We're going to see that as we push forward because that brings me to the next point there, that God gives us the necessary knowledge to humble us at his glory. God gives us the necessary knowledge to humble us at his glory. The lyric from the great hymn, How Firm a Foundation, rings true here. What more can he say than to you he hath said? If you're struggling to make sense of life, if you're struggling to understand your place in this world, if you're struggling to grasp God's word, seek him and find him. He's not hidden, nor is he silent. And the more you seek him in his word, the more the spirit illuminates your understanding to humble you at the glory of God. Because that's what he is doing at work in the hearts of the Israelites here. So they, they, they see Pharaoh and they're afraid. But then they see the one whom they should really have an awe-inspiring fear of. And they realize and they believe in the Lord and they believe in the one whom God sent as his servant, that is Moses. God will give you the necessary knowledge to bring you to your knees at his glory and grace in the cross of Christ. That's what we're going to see as we press forward. Because here, look, so this is one of my favorite parts of this story is chapter 15. So Moses then leads the people in singing this song. And one of my favorite verses there is chapter 15, verse 13. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed you have guided them by your strength to your holy abode and that holy abode there is of course mount sinai so god has been at work in this story in an overabundance of ways to liberate his people that's that's clear but as we press forward we see that his purposes extend well beyond their physical liberation, right? He's revealing his power, revealing himself, giving his covenant name to liberate them from slavery to the Egyptians. But even more importantly, he is extending to them their spiritual liberation. Because as we look at the story from here onward, from when they realize they have this epiphany, this awakening by the Spirit, then they sing in in glorious praise to God. From here onward, we see the Lord was liberating them to show them His standards so they could be in right relationship with Him. So you move on in the story from there, we see that they immediately move on into the wilderness. So after singing God's praises, they start to complain about God's lack of provision, or at least in their mind lack of provision. And then once again, God provides. So He makes the bitter water that existed. He, ma- he gives them sweet. He gives them water to drink, which is kind of necessary in the desert, right? And then He gives them bread to eat because they're complaining about not having enough. And then they immediately face an enemy in Amalek and the Amalekites. And God gives them victory. Once again, using Moses as an as example that as Moses' arms were lifted, The people had victory. Whenever his arms would drop, that they would be driven back. And so then Aaron and Joshua hold up Moses' arms, and then he brings them to Sinai. This is the point that he's been bringing them to, to liberate them so that he can then not just make himself known, but make himself known in his word, in his standards, in his law. So turn to chapter 19. Chapter 19. So this is after this is on the other side of Amalek, and, and we have chapter 18, and Moses starts to try to discern between the people all these different disputes, these different things going on. His father in law gives him some good advice on leadership there and, um, and submitting to the Lord in that. And then we get to chapter 19, and the people make it to Sinai. Now I want you to look specifically there at verse 4, chapter 19. So the Lord tells Moses to declare this. He says, thus shall you say to the house of Jacob to tell the people of Israel. Verse 4. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. So again, that was his purpose in those actions, to bring them to Sinai so that they could hear his law and hear his word and know how to attain to his standards. Now therefore, verse five, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for the earth is mine. And so he's saying. He's he's getting ready to issue the covenant here in the the covenant that He's getting ready to issue and being in this special covenant relationship with His people comes with a standard by which His people should live so that they can reflect His glory and be set apart from all these other peoples and be His treasured possession, as He says right there, among all the peoples so that they can show that the Lord's standards and the Lord's ways are right and true and good. And so you go from chapter 20 to chapter 23 is the first issuing of the law. You get the Ten Commandments there in chapter 20, and he continued past those. Of course, the Ten Commandments are used as kind of the, the summation of the rest of the law. And so you go to laws about how to worship God and laws about uh, your uh, indentured servants and slaves, laws about restitution and, and social justice and Sabbath festivals. So again, how to worship God. And then you get to chapter 24. So our text where we're at this morning. So we have this, the law is given for this purpose that we just read there in chapter 19, that the, the Lord is issuing this covenant and with the covenant comes covenant obligation. That as the Lord has provided for their needs time and time again, that the people have to walk in accordance with how the Lord says. In accordance with His standard, His ways. And so we are given the law. Now this brings me, I want to give us three things that the law reveals. And these stand true for us as the church. The first thing that you see there on your outline is that the law establishes the standard of freedom. Again, the Lord has liberated them for this very purpose, to lead them to His mountain where He can meet with them and give them His word so that they can know how to live in in His righteous standard, so they can be made right before Him and walk before Him. And so the Lord... The law gives the law to establish his standard of freedom. Now, that one might cause you to kind of maybe furrow your brow. I'm trying to furrow my brow here, and I wasn't really knowing what that was looking like. So, how could the law, right, this strict standard of rules, give us a standard of freedom? Paul makes it clear for us in Romans 6 that we are either dead in our enslavement to sin or alive in Christ. What the law does is reveal God's standard of righteousness, saying, this is what it looks like to be mine. This is what it looks like to walk in obedience to me. This is what it looks like to be liberated as my people, to be liberated from the enslavement of death and sin of this world, and to walk according to my ways. This is what it means to be in relationship with me. And this is why I can't help but laugh at that era in the church in which it might still be popular among some people today, but to to virtue signal, right? By stating that phrase, it's not about religion, it's about relationship, right? Yes, but a right relationship with God is good and right and necessary. However, the unavoidable reality that Scripture lays out for us is that God sets a righteous standard for those who He is in relationship with right? And so we cannot reach that righteous standard in and of ourselves. We don't enter into this relationship lightly. And this begins, God giving the standard by, which, uh, by His grace to His people because that's the other thing that's missed here is that God giving the law is an act of grace. He wants His people to know what it looks like to walk in the freedom of being in relationship with Him. And this goes all the way back to Eden. That in the garden he told them, Do not eat from the tree in the middle of the garden, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Why? Because if you do, you will surely die. So he wanted them to know. He, by his grace, he, he wanted to protect them from that standard. And of course, the enemy twists God's words and 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 makes God's word out to say what it actually doesn't. So what the law sets is that standard by which our souls can be set free from sin and death. So God says to his people, you are mine and this is what that looks like. Walk before me and obey this word. Now, of course, this to us and for the people, the reality should have been like, can't do that without your strength, without your grace, without your mercy. But this for us, this is what makes the cross of Christ so sweet. This is what makes the gospel such good news. That in Christ, we have the incarnate word which fulfills every dot and every iota written in the written word. And he sacrifices himself so that we may be set free from sin and death. He adheres to the law because we couldn't. So the next thing that I want to see there, so I said three things that the law reveals. So first is there that the law establishes the standard of freedom. It shows us what it costs, what we have to adhere to to truly be free from sin and death. And then the next thing that the law reveals is that the law reveals the sweet assurance of God's unchanging nature. That God, that God establishes His covenant as an eternal standard. He says, I am not changing, and these are my ways. And I want you to know that I do not change, and I want you to know that my ways do not change. And so there's something sweet about knowing that there's a standard which we have to Attain to of righteousness and holiness. And that the one who has set that standard isn't going to change it on us. He's not going to pull the rug out from under us and say, as hard as you tried, psych. Like, that's not it, right? Like, this is my new standard. So the law gives us in this sweet assurance of God's unchanging nature. But as you'll see, there's the last thing. But the larger theological word for this is God's immutability, all right? So just put that in the bank, use it for yourself. God's immutability, right? The law reveals to us God's unchanging standard, which is based on his unchanging nature. God says of himself in Malachi chapter 3, verse 6, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. And so it's only because of God's unchanging nature, his immutability, that we can stand before him at all. It's because of his unchanging nature of grace that he reveals his standard to us, that we may know that we are out of alignment with it. God's unchanging nature solidifies his standard of righteousness and his glorious grace upon those whom he calls to himself. Which brings me to that third thing which the law reveals. The law exposes the depravity of our fickle flesh. Because it's in looking deep into the mirror of the law, that we can't help but be confronted with the undeniable truth that we don't match up to it. And that's the purpose of the law, is to reveal that here's God's standard to be in right relationship with Him, and here's where you are. And the two don't match up. They're not compatible. And no matter how hard we try, we can't reach it in and of ourselves. We can't Do it. There's no amount of good things that we can do to make ourselves match up to that law. And so, the Lord establishes His covenant with His people, gives them His law, and Moses, in our text today, in the the first text that we read, chapter 24, he comes up and God instructs him exactly what to do. And so, Verse 3, Moses comes to the people, and he tells them all the words of the Lord. He tells them all the words and all the rules, and all the people, every single one of them, answer in one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. The problem is that they don't do <laughs> them, Right? I mean, they've, they've inevitably shown them of themselves that they're already out of whack with God's word, And so he goes on. Moses writes down the words, "He rose early in the morning, builds an altar to sanctify the people." That in and of itself should have been a glaring reality, like, like if we have to be, you know if this, we have to go through all this, just you, know, to agree to this covenant, maybe we should realize how out of whack with this covenant we already are." And so. He sends young men, he throws blood on the altar, he throws blood on the people, and so they're covered in blood at this point. He took the book of the covenant, read it in the hearing, so he reads it again, and they say again, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. Moses says, behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. In Moses, we're given the written law. What I want us to see, church, is that in Christ, we have the incarnate word that fulfills every dot and iota of the written law that we may be declared righteous by that very standard. Turn to Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7. So This is just so good because here. This is coming right off of uh, chapter 6, obviously, uh, in which Paul is discussing in chapter 6 that uh, the famous verse, are we to sin because we are no longer under the law but under grace? Or are we to abuse grace, therefore, because we're no longer under the law? And he says, by no means. Of course, do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient Slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. That's chapter 6. But here in chapter 7, he continues to expound on what this means. Chapter 7, verse 1. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? So he goes on to give this analogy of husband and a wife, that a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if the husband dies, she's released from the law of marriage. So, accordingly, he says, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law, and if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, so verse 4, But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. So, in other words, in Christ, the law is no longer the just judgment which weighs over our head like a gavel ready to drop. But rather, in the work of Christ on the cross, the gavel has dropped, and we are freed from the law of sin and death to walk in the newness of life, Justified according to the law. Therefore, that's the final point there on your outline Christ sets us free from sin and law. Now, Paul goes on to elaborate this even further that this does not mean that we who are in Christ are free to live lives of lawlessness. So, in other words, the law that because Christ has set us free doesn't mean that the law is of irrepute or is outdated or no longer useful. Rather, while we are in the flesh, the law is there as the constant standard by which we are to live to the glory of God. That standard still exists for God's holiness and for His people to be made holy and by the strength of the Spirit within us. Right. So, so we see there that on one end of the spectrum... In no way do we regard the law as useless or out of date or out of touch or or no longer relevant. And on the other end of the spectrum is legalism, right? It's attempting to subvert the grace of God and live under the law by our own strength. And so in the middle is the freedom which Christ has provided. Is that He attained to the law and made us righteous according to the law. By his blood. So rather than the blood which Moses threw on the people and they said, We'll obey, and then they immediately did it, that the blood of Christ that has now been put on us establishes our righteousness according to the law. And therefore, the law is is our foundation, it's our standard that we have been made right according to it. So we don't just throw it out. And this is what prompts Paul to go on to say in Romans chapter 8. Move forward there to jump ahead there to Romans 8. Where he says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done with the law, weakened by the flesh, so that the The law wasn't weak in and of itself. It was our flesh that was weak, and that's what he expounds upon here. Weakened by the flesh, could not do so. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit." So now by the strength of the Spirit, we who have been declared righteous by the law can walk in the holiness, in increasing holiness, right? Sanctification that the Spirit provides us. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. So, what do we see here? Therefore. When we as the church, the redeemed people of God, look back and read the law, our hearts should burst out of our chest with joy for what God has accomplished on our behalf through Christ the Son and what He is still doing in our hearts through the Holy Spirit. As He has declared us righteous according to the law, and through His Spirit He is slowly and surely growing us to attain to that standard of righteousness. Because we are consistently, in our Christian walk, growing and walking in holiness. So are the Ten Commandments still relevant today? You betcha. Why? Because Christ came not to abolish the law and prophets, but to fulfill them. We look to the law not for salvation, but for sanctification. And look at what Paul says in those next verses. Verse 5, which I already read there. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. For those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Verse 6 For to set the law, for to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. So let's ask ourselves, church, where is your mindset? Is it set on the flesh and the law of sin and death, or is it set on Christ, who is your life? Are you satisfied in fulfilling your fleshly desires, or do you desire to attain to God's righteous standard by way of the cross? Because here's the reality. In the end, what will matter is if you're singing in the freedom of God's just ways, or if you are still stuck trying to justify your ways. Don't miss what I said there, that what will matter in the end is if you're singing in the freedom of God's just ways, the freedom won for you by Christ on the cross, or if you're still stuck in justifying your ways. And here's what I mean by that. Last place. Turn to Revelation 15 as we wrap up. Revelation 15. In verse 1. This is... John writing from the island of Patmos. And he says here in chapter 15, verse 1, Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. So something big is getting ready to go down here, Okay. Verse two, and I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. So that's the redeemed people of God, he sees, standing beside the throne. And they sing what? Verse three, they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, great And amazing are your deeds, O Lord God, the Almighty. Just and true are your what? Are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. So as Israel looked back, to first see Pharaoh, and they looked in fear to God. And then they looked back on the Red Sea to see Pharaoh consumed by it. And they looked back to, uh, at the works of God to rescue and save them from slavery to the Egyptians. So the church of Christ looks to the cross to see God's riser's actions to liberate us from slavery to sin. And we declare just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. And so the question before us is, are you part of those who are eager to declare just are your ways? Or are you under his righteous and just wrath according to his ways? Let's pray, church. God, as we, your church, declare now that your... Ways are true and right and good and your law is just. I pray for those here now who cling to the work of Christ on the cross. Those whom you have called to yourself that you would in us overwhelm us at your grace revealed in Christ to declare us righteous according to the law. I also pray right now, Lord, for those who have not surrendered to the work of Christ on the cross, who are clinging to their selfish desires, that you would overwhelm them at the reality of our depravity and our flesh, which your law so righteously does, and that you would overwhelm them at the truth of your grace revealed in the cross of Christ and draw them to yourself. Father, as we enter this time of response, I pray that you would prompt your people to respond accordingly. Prompt those who are in your church to respond by shouting and singing your praise. Bring them to their knees in repentance. Help them to cry out in prayer to you. I pray that those who are lost would respond by seeking your salvation provided through the work of Christ on the cross. And I pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen.